0: have you ever heard of solar sailing well today we speak to amber Deville and dr grover swartzlander to find out more
1: yep amber has recently been announced as the winner of the phase three grant for the nasa innovative advanced concept program for her team's concept of a light diffracting solar cell.
0: if you found this podcast interesting Please let us know at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website.
1: And don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. But right now, enjoy episode 94 of the Space and Things Podcast. You are listening to Space
0: and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney.
1: I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 94 of our podcast. Emily, it feels like ages since we last did this. It does. But it has only been two weeks, and you've been in Houston for the Moon to Mars Festival, so tell us all about that.
0: It was really cool. Um, The only thing that was difficult was it was extremely hot in Houston this weekend, but then again, it's extremely hot everywhere, so that's not just a Houston thing (laughs) right now. Right, I've been inside all day because I'm like, I don't want to go out there, but... um. It was awesome. There was an innovation tent that uh had a lot of different contractors, including, you know, Boeing and Lockheed Martin, but think Orbital was there. And I did talk to the guys briefly um nice. there for a little bit. So they were there. That was kind of neat to touch base with them and yeah. it was a lot of fun. It was just super hot. Yeah. There are some neat new uh exhibitions at Space Center Houston as well. I don't think they were exclusive to the festival only. At least at least I hope they weren't, but They had a new uh, Artemis exhibit. Oh, nice. It was actually really cool. It really emphasized, you know, how, you know, we're going to the moon, but it's going to be a little different this time. It's going to look different, you know, and they had a big picture of Jessica Watkins up front, and I loved, I loved that. I was like, yes, we're going to have, you know, a woman on the moon this time. It's not just going to be, you know, as much as I love the Apollo guys, it's going to look different. It's going to have a different feel. And we're not going to go to the moon the same way as we did back then. So I just thought it was amazing. So uh, I had a great time. I always love going to Houston and, and seeing my friends at uh, at Celestius. I did go to the office uh, for a bit. They do have an office in, in Houston. And I, I love seeing my friends at Space Center Houston and at NASA and everything. So it was a lot of fun. I had a great time.
1: Excellent. Um, talking of think orbital i actually met up with seb in london uh, a couple of weeks back which is pretty cool as well. that's awesome it's great when we get to meet people in real life who we've had on the podcast i'm loving that talking of contact with people who have been on the show i sent you this emily did you see the the well i know you did because i sent it to you the review we had from chris marshall on itunes Yes. I thought I was
0: dreaming. Like when I woke up, I was like, that wasn't real. And then I, cause I've been taking, I'm okay. I don't want people to worry about me, but I've been taking melatonin lately just cause it knocks me out faster to get to sleep. I'm not lying awake thinking of like everything I have to do for the week. So, um, you know, I woke up thinking, man, I must've had another crazy dream or something <laughs> like that. And then I realized, no, that's real. That's a real comment. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, That's wonderful. She was such an awesome guest on our show. That just made my whole year. So, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, she
1: said, you guys love space so much and your love for it is infectious, which was so sweet. Uh, And and obviously, episode one of For All Mankind is now out of the season three. And wow, that was dramatic. No spoilers. But that was an hour of pure drama, which uh, certainly had me on edge.
0: Actually, uh, for Chris Bain, I I do want to provide one spoiler. There's... (laughs) I couldn't believe that Ed Baldwin shook hands with the alien from Planet Klaatu at the end of the first episode. We're doing a joint mission with the aliens for the... C- oh, sorry.
1: Sorry, Chris. <laughs> sorry, Chris. Um, sorry, everybody. Also, yeah. uh, while I was away, obviously the episode went up. The Gemini episode that we we'd pre-recorded went up. And uh, it's gone down really well, even though I've, I've not even commented about it, not even posted about it yet as we are recording this. But it's gone down really well. And something that I can't believe you didn't mention, you must have known this and someone has commented on on our Facebook page about. Dave Stange has helped us out massively here. I can't believe you didn't bring this up. But he said, just a quick comment on the latest podcast dealing with the Gemini program. We all know that Emily loves both the Skylab and Gemini programs but we failed to mention the link between the programs. Yes, That there was a hatch on Skylab that was from a Gemini capsule crazy
0: yes I apologize for (laughs) that um my guess is probably yeah uh, both by McDonnell Douglas probably so uh that's probably why they used it same contractor but yes I apologize for not bringing that up and making that link um Skylab, there we go. I said it. I got it out of my system. Thank you. Well, you just talked about being in
1: Houston and didn't mention it. I'm proud of you. Anyway, let's crack on with today's main feature. NASA recently announced the winner of phase three of one of their most futuristic grant programs, NIAC, which stands for NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts. The idea is to try and take things which may seem like science fiction and turn them into reality. This year's
0: winning project is a new solar sail concept, and the project is led by Amber DeBille of the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, or APL. The feasibility of the concept was previously studied under the NIACs phase one and two awards led by Dr. Grover Swartzlander of the Rochester Institute of Technology in New York, who continues as a co-investigator on the project. Under the earlier awards, the team designed created, and tested different types of diffractive sail materials, conducted experiments, and designed new navigation and control schemes for a potential diffractive light sail mission orbiting the sun's poles. That is awesome.
1: Yep, and today we're joined by both Amber and Dr. Grover to find out so much more. Right now the score is man three, space
0: nothing, but it's low. Welcome to our podcast, and congratulations on the latest Research Money Award from NASA. Now, before we get into your design concept, uh, can you give us a, a just kind of, for our listeners who may not know, can you give us just a simple breakdown of what a solar sail is and and why we might need them?
2: So, the best analogy is thinking about a sail, a sailboat in space, Um, but instead of wind, you use actually radiation pressure from the sun. Uh, Solar sails specifically use light from the sun, but you can do laser sails, which use photons from lasers as the method of propulsion. So it's a massless infinite form of propulsion, right? And you use this to push the spacecraft. So you have these large flimsy metallic structures, usually for traditional solar sailing, and you use them to push the spacecraft uh, into the orbits you want instead of rocket fuel and hydrazine, uh, traditional propulsion.
3: I'll just add to that, that um, in the laboratory, we make measurements of radiation pressure uh, using a, a laser in a very small sample, might be about a centimeter size, mini sail mini if you want. And the forces we get in the laboratory are about uh, equivalent to about a nanonewton, which is almost equivalent to about the weight of a bacterium. So it's extremely small, so a very sensitive instruments. Um, But when you put something in space and it's very large on the order of maybe like, say, hundreds of uh, meters on a side, then um, you can get enough acceleration to actually push things around in space in such a way that is competitive and even superior to what you can do with rockets. Because with the solar cell, you have continuous acceleration. Rockets, you get a few bursts and then your fuel is done and you, you, you have what you have with solar radiation pressure. You can continuously change your orbit and go various places.
1: Okay. And, and again, before we get onto your design, excuse my ignorance, but has this actually been done in space or is this a, a concept which is works in theory but hasn't actually been put into practice yet?
3: I, I'll take this. There, there have been, uh, I guess you could say, three successful deployments of solar cells, or at least three agencies. Um, NASA uh, has uh, put up a demonstration mission. The Japanese put up a uh, a demonstration mission, and uh, currently, <clears throat> it's been over a thousand days that the Planetary Society, which was started by Carl Sagan and others, have a solar sail orbiting the Earth right now, and it's slowly uh, decaying in its orbit and it will eventually crash back into the Earth. But it's a surprisingly successful uh, demonstration of how a solar sail can. Keep a satellite in space um, and keep it from basically decaying its orbit because of drag from the uh, atmosphere in space, uh, crashing into the Earth. So it's an extremely uh, surprisingly uh, successful mission.
2: There's also two upcoming uh, solar cells that will actually use the propulsion to do a specified trajectory. So our other co-I, Les Johnson, is the PI for uh, Neo Scout and Solar Cruiser. Uh, NEO Scout is supposed to launch with uh, the SLS uh, In it was supposed to go 2021, but now I guess it's 2022. Um, And that one is uh, going to a near-Earth asteroid. That will be really the first one that actually uses the propulsion more than a demonstration to actually change the orbit in a specific way. Uh, And then Solar Cruiser is the follow-on after that, which is uh, going on under a mission called IMAP uh, in 2025. And that one will be going to uh, in, a, in an L1 orbit uh, and actually using the propulsion as well. So uh, those will be the first two to actually use the sail for something other than a demonstration.
1: All right. OK, so that sets the scene nicely. And before again, before we get onto your design, I like an origin story. So can we take a, a brief introduction from both of you about how you got into this and, and and what's your solar cell origin story, so to speak? How did you get into this work? Where do you come from and how does that f- fill into this work?
3: I guess it, it almost dates back to when I was a graduate student at Purdue University. Uh, we had a, a, a scientist uh, come from Bell Labs, Art Ashkin, who actually uh, got the Nobel Prize some years ago for uh, studying uh, optical tweezers, which is a form of radiation pressure. Uh, And I was so inspired by his talk at that seminar that I ended up picking a research advisor that was doing uh, work, not directly related, but indirectly related. And so I've always been interested in radiation pressure. Uh, And then some, uh, maybe about a decade ago, I started to get interested in, you know, butterflies and how different things fly and uh, and lift and wondering whether there were analogies to uh, aerodynamic lift and optics. And so we developed a, a concept to study uh, optical lift, and, uh, and that led to actually our first NIAC award. And then that was not going to be suitable for uh, for solar sailing, but it, it took us to, to our path to start scratching our heads thinking about what what else we could do. And then I thought, well, for solar sailing, all you need to do is you take a light from the sun and you redirect it in some fashion. And so, diffraction gratings are very effective at redirecting light, just as mirrors are. Uh, And so, I started investigating whether diffractive solar sails could be superior in some ways to reflective sails. And so, that's led to our most recent uh, Phase 1, Phase 2, and now our Phase 3. Amber joined me as a uh, graduate student at, uh, at RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology, and did her thesis on space missions to the sun or using a diffracted solar sail. So I'll let Amber describe what she did.
2: I didn't start in solar sails when I started in space. I came into college and started working on CubeSats, uh, which Dr. Center talks about, Light Sail 2 from the Planetary Society. That's a CubeSat. Um, so is NanoCell D2, which is um, the NASA solar sailing mission. So I got started on CubeSats, and then I actually um, interned at NASA Langley for eight to nine months. And uh, one of those, I, I worked on a, another a NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts project under under a different mentor. And that was a, a phase one. And so when I came back from that, I was looking for research for my graduate part of my study at RIT. I, I'm a mechanical engineer. Uh, and I was introduced to Dr. Schwartzlander, who was starting with the, the phase one and, and wanted uh, a student to work under him more on the mission design and on the spacecraft side rather than on the optic side and radiation pressure side so that's how i got into solar sailing and then since then um, you know i did my thesis on it the thesis uh, we did went through a mission trajectory design for a solar polar orbiter Um, in different phases we ended up publishing on that so in for just one and then there was parts about a constellation of them and then there was i Ended up getting into the attitude control of these sails, and and how you can do a simplified control scheme um, with attractive that you can't do with a reflective, a reflective sail. And then after that, I actually uh, graduated and started working at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, and I work on a different spacecraft in my day job. But I, you know, still was into the solar sailing. You know, once you're in it, I don't, you don't really get out of that community. <laughs> and so we we still kept in contact, and we're talking about uh, going for this grant. And, and we did, and that's, that's how we, we kept pursuing solar sailing. So once you're in it, you never you never really get out. And we got to do some really uh, cool trips to Alabama um, and see an actual solar sail. Also work with the solar sailing guys at NASA Marshall um, on a lot of different stuff. So I've been involved first because of Dr. Swartzlander and then continued from there.
3: If I could add one thing, uh, Amber's a little bit modest. Uh, she did uh, develop her own maneuver for uh, taking a, a diffractive solar cell that faces the sun. Imagine you, you take your hand and you just basically, your hand is facing the sun. And by rotating your hand around the axis of the sunlight back and forth, you can actually end up going closer to the sun and over the poles of the sun by doing this maneuver. So uh, I call it the
1: Dubil Maneuver. Nice.
2: We do name it Dubil Maneuver uh, unofficially, <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah, it's official now. I, I've just decided... I don't know. Under <laughs> yes. what capacity? I've just decided, but it's official now.
0: It's official. Yeah. So solar sailing is sort of like the Hotel California. You can check in, but you never really leave. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. You always have sort of a allegiance to it. So your award from NASA is a Phase Three award, which means this is the closest that you know so far. It's it's come to you know fruition. And you and you guys have already talked a little bit about this, but um, why is your solar sail different from? Let's say, you know, others that have already been, you know, deployed or, or designed.
3: Uh, as I was saying earlier that uh, what you need for radiation pressure and solar sailing is you need to redirect sunlight. And so imagine you have a, a mirror and you, you tilt it slightly so that instead of the sunlight just going directly back at the sun, it goes up at some angle. That's what you would need for a reflective solar sail in order to go places that are meaningful. So by rotating that, uh, you actually end up projecting less light onto the sail. Imagine if you wrote tilted the sail 90 degrees, you'd have actually no light on the face of the sail. And so you'd, you'd end up getting no radiation pressure at all. So I wondered whether we could have some other kind of sail that was actually facing the sun, so you didn't lose that projection angle, uh, but yet still redirected light. And it occurred to me diffraction gradients are ideal. So The challenge is that we need to direct light across the entire solar spectrum at a large angle, and so that's part of our research. Uh, So, but the basic idea is that a diffraction gradient is very much like a bunch of small prisms, and each of those prisms are basically just refracting the light off at some angle. And um, because you have a whole series of them, an array of them, it ends up exhibiting diffractive effects as well. So, diffraction occurs when things are… Features are like, like a structure it is on the order of the size of the wavelength of light. And so then you get interesting things. Like when you look at a, a compact disc, if you remember those were, you might still have some. They scatter light in a very beautiful rainbow of colors. And that's essentially uh, very similar to what we're, we're proposing is something that's going to be a very thin. Imagine you, you've peeled off that thin layer of uh, on top of your, your CD. That would be about sufficient for building a solar cell in space.
2: If you want to get down one more level of that, in this case, we want to go toward the sun or toward the wind. So with a reflective sail, you have to tack back and forth to get the right orbital um, trajectory or the right uh, force direction on that sail with an area that is decreasing because of that angle to that incoming light. With a diffractive sail, you can actually go toward the wind, face the wind and go directly toward it. So you're actually saving that area. That's the very like basic analogy that I think helps people understand what the difference is.
0: We have a question from one of our Patreon subscribers. Uh, we've had a couple of questions, I should say, from our Patreons. Uh, the first is from Don Irwin, who asks, what are the potential speeds that can be achieved? And do you guys have any current customers?
3: So I would say that the, the, the speed is measured in, in what they call delta V. So um, basically, if you want to go any place in space, you have to be able to change your velocity of... Basically, when you leave the Earth, you're going around um, one AU uh, from the sun, and you're going around at some velocity. You need to change that velocity to go any place, whether you want to go out toward Mars or in toward the sun, you have to change that velocity. And so uh, for a maneuver for, uh, let's say, to do a solar polar orbiter, Amber, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe the the delta V's required are on the order of maybe 20?
2: Like meters per second? Yeah. I would have to go back and check, but I do think that's on the right order of magnitude. Also, I would say speed is relative, especially when it comes to orbits. So you're talking about like, oh, what speed is. But when you're talking about solar sailing, it's a low thrust, um, high ISP type of type of propulsion. So. You're not actually speed like accelerating very fast. Um, the thrust is relatively low. It's just a constant thrust. And this is like comparative to um, ion engine uh, propulsion. It's the same type of trajectories you see these spiraling in. So you're actually not really totally talking about speed. You're talking about your acceleration. And there's a characteristic acceleration of the sail um, that has to do with the mass of the sail, the size of the sail, um the mass of your payload or your your spacecraft bus and really the, the the at the end of the day the lighter your spacecraft with the larger sail the faster you're going to accelerate. So that's actually what we're tracking and those are that's that's on a very small order of magnitude but When you start off you're going pretty slow but as you know let's say you're going into um, some of these orbits they take like six years right so you're going into these six year orbits and let's say your characteristic acceleration is like 0.005 c like the speed of light right like uh, you might start off really slow but after six years now you're actually starting to get speed so i will say speed is relative and it's more about your characteristic acceleration but it is low thrust so it is not like you know, uh some of these traditional propulsion methods where you have a rocket and you, you know, burn your delta V and you're you're really, you know, cruising in the first um, maneuver. So it's more like that.
3: Yeah, the acceleration is typically about a millimeter or a fraction of a millimeter per second. So every second, let's say you're stepping up by let's say a half a millimeter per second. Seems like really small, but you have a lot of seconds over a month or a year. And so you can <laughs> you can uh, this this is why solar sailing is so exciting. That in principle, uh, you can
1: get very large delta V's that are impossible to do with with chemical rockets. Right, which leads us not nicely to this next question from Toby Jeffries, who is asking about maneuverability. How do you go about speed? like slowing down when you reach your target. Is that a thing? Is that or, or are these the the kind of missions that these vehicles do is it about just being in orbit of something or reaching a destination and doing a flyby
3: you know one of the hard things about rocket science is going not just developing the rocket we need a rocket basically to get out of of the earth's orbit out of the gravitational influence of this of the of the earth but once we're up there how do you go from point a at some velocity to point b at some other velocity and so let's say if if you wanted to do a, a rendezvous mission let's say with mars you would finally tune everything on your trajectory so that you would just, by the time you get out to the Mars orbit, you're going exactly at the velocity of Mars. And so you basically are locked then into the Mars orbit. Now, if you wanted to land onto Mars, then it's a whole other story of how you would have to do that. But you can you can design these things very precisely to get exactly the right distance and the right velocity that you need. And uh, you may need to do a little bit of tweaking along the way it's certainly very feasible to navigate these things to your destination.
2: You can do either. You can do a flybys. Um, if, you, if you're if you looking at the different solar sails that they're, uh, traditional tr- solar sails that they're uh, trying to launch. So Neo Scout is doing more of a flyby orbit and going into orbit around a near Earth asteroid, but, Ah, uh, that's a way different maneuver than you know Solar Cruiser, which is doing like an l going to l one. So they're trying to actually make it to a point and then land in that l one orbit. When we're talking about our solar sails, we're talking about solar polar orbiter constellations or solar polar orbiters for diffractive sailing. You we're talking about getting into a very nice, like thr- slowly spiraling into a very nice um circular orbit at different inclinations, right? So, you can do any of these. There's multitude of papers out there on different solar sailing trajectories, and as Dr. Soderbladner says, you kind of tune your trajectory along the way for an optimization to match that final destination that you're trying to trying to do. So it's not like a sudden like, oh no, we're gonna like flip it and stop. We're not. You're not trying to do that. And um, that is one of the issues that you see with the regular traditional solar sailing, not the the trajectories, but how do you maneuver these large, flimsy structures? You know, for um, attitude control is actually more of the more of the concern, and that's something that we hope that we can circumnavigate with facto solar sailing that we can't do with traditional solar sailing right now.
1: Okay, this is blowing my mind. That the, the sheer amount of maths involved in all of this <laughs> uh, it goes well beyond anything I could comprehend myself. Um, Toby has another question, which uh, is a little bit out there, but I quite like it. It goes into this whole idea of, of of this solar cell potentially being a rainbow, uh, and, and obviously this is more of a um, the, the level that I'm coming from with this as well, which I why i appreciate this question he says if different colors are possible uh could take in advertising on offset some costs or even could there be some kind of art involved with uh with this idea or is the color just a, a byproduct of the process rather than being targeted
3: i would say that uh he's he's absolutely right um i have a uh a slide uh that i when i give my presentations uh, showing a, a simulated version of what would happen as, as the solar cell is kind of going by the Earth and just, let's say, catching the moonlight and shining that light down onto Earth, and you'd see this spectrum of colors go by. Uh, it could be really quite beautiful and stunning. One can imagine um, putting what we call electro-optically controlled diffractive elements on the cell to blink advertising uh down to earth or to aliens for that matter (laughs) yeah so it yeah it certainly is is very feasible and uh not not that far-fetched if coca-cola is listening uh (laughs) we'll take another million dollars
2: i would say it's more of a byproduct at the moment uh but you'd have to you'd have to pay extra for that feature uh to get implemented
1: (laughs) i love that that's such a great idea one final
0: question um so, what are your best hopes for this project, and and what's your dream mission for your solar sail?
2: So, the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts grants usually, you know, you go through the phase one, phase two, and then recently uh, we are the fifth ever uh, NIAC phase three grant. They they give one per year. NIAC in itself is, you know, I always say NASA trying to get a home run off the first hit. They take far out, fetched out ideas. You know, you're talking submarines on Titan, you know, uh, cryogenically freezing humans for like uh, spaceflight to Mars, stuff like that. They're, They're talking really awesome ideas. And, you know, you go through the first phase one, phase two, and they say, okay, is this even feasible? Here's a little bit of support. Show us that it's, you know, this could happen in 10, 15, 50 years. Right. And as you progress through the phases, you're getting more toward actual feasibility actual implementation of a technology so for diffractive solar sailing we're at that point with that phase three which we're trying to transition out of the NIAC program um, because that is what the NIAC phase three was meant to do and get picked up by an actual mission either a demonstration mission or a being implemented in a larger mission proposal now Part of the, the reason we bring to APL from RIT in the past NIAx is APL is we've done spacecraft. We do different heliophysics spacecraft. We have a very large heliophysics community. And using that community and, and the resources here to be able to Move away from this. Oh, oh! This would be cool to do, and this is a, a an up-and-coming technology. Here's the feasibility. We've already shown the feasibility. To be honest, we're trying to get into that transition into being picked up. So I hope by the the end of the phase three, we have laid the groundwork for a uh, a demonstration mission or to be picked up by a, another mission proposal. Obviously, the the one that I is near and dear to my heart is the diffractive solar sailing. For uh, solar polar orbiters, Uh, we haven't actually seen much of the solar poles and traditional propulsion cannot get us past 30 degrees above the ecliptic. Um, Real science starts above 60 degrees if you talk to any heliophysicist. So being able to get us up there, you know, 90 degrees, even 60 degrees. Would be the dream mission for me, and then you can you can imagine like a four pi coverage of the sun. You can imagine a solar weather constellation that gives us early warning um, and actually helps us really understand the complex environment around the sun or the complex physics behind our sun that we don't we, we're missing a whole you know sixty degree latitude above and below we're we're missing that and this would really be able to fill in the blank so. That's the, the goal is doing that type of mission near and dear to my heart and, you know, transitioning after this, our period of performance to lay that groundwork.
1: That is blowing my mind. <laughs> um,
0: that would be cool. I know, Just right? Just to see a picture of like the sun, you know, north to south or something like that versus, you know, equatorial. That would be awesome.
1: Yeah.
2: I was like, if you think about it, like not not much goes, you know, how the solar system forms, it, it ends up in a disk. Things in space like to end up in disks uh, because of angular momentum distribution. So to get out of the ecliptic is actually kind of hard and and traditional propulsion, you have to use um, gravity assist from like Venus and Earth and Ju- even Jupiter, you go out to come back in. It's not very easy. It's it's a lot of energy, but like we talk about low thrust, but constant low thrust with a, something that you don't have to carry your own propellant weight, uh, you can get up there. And that's, that's what we're trying to do.
0: Wow. (laughs) Yeah,
3: amazing. I was going to say that we know that all orbiting bodies, that what happens at the equator is much different than what happens at the poles. And we probably won't be surprised if we see interesting pattern formations, you know, all kinds of magnetic anomalies. Um, Some people even suggest that the solar neutrino flux may be much different coming out of the poles. Uh, So there's a whole body of physics just waiting to be discovered. If you looked in the mirror, you never saw the top of your head or your feet. You know, you'd have a much different perspective of yourself, and that's kind of like how we are with the sun. We have no pictures of the poles of
1: the sun; it's uh, it's a big mystery. How how long do you think it's likely to be before something like that, a mission like that, could happen? I mean, do do you have any kind of predicted time scales or is it all very much hypothetical in or re- reliant on so many processes that it's difficult to put a date on?
2: I would say it's a little bit difficult to put a date on. Um, if you're talking about feasibility, uh, you know five five years for, probably about five years for a diffractive solar sailing mission um, to do something like the solar polar orbiters to do the, the whole entire constellation. You're talking probably at least 10 years, 10, 15 years. So that, that's more of the timeline that we propose, the roadmap that we propose um, when, we, when we talk about it. Uh, but again, it, you do have to go through the whole process of going through mission proposals and um, raising the TRL. That's what we're doing. Um, through this this grant. And we have already had samples that we've tested of this diffractive uh, material and the diffractive sale material. And we're continuing to do that with the next phase of this. So.
1: so thank you so much for spending some time with us to explain this, to try and explain this to us uh, in, in a way that we could understand it. I've got a massive smile on my face right now, because this is all so exciting. So I can't wait to see yeah. where this goes over the next couple of years. Yeah,
0: I, I, I'm, I know nothing about it, but I'm very fascinated with solar physics and I would love to see this happen. So best of luck to y'all and I would love to see this happen.
2: Thanks for your interest. Yeah, thank you for thank you for having us. And like, so we just, we love hearing people be, get excited and, you know, want to talk about this kind of stuff.
0: Yep, it's awesome fraternal order of one-armed paper hangers in
3: recognition of your efforts on SL4, and particularly of the last week, have elected you collectively one-armed paper hangers of the year.
0: That is really uh, amazing. I love solar physics. I've a- I've really a- always been interested in the sun and looking at, you know, images of the sun. But uh, I don't know much about modeling. Uh, that stuff is very uh, <laughs> math and physics heavy. So um, I just think the idea of having a polar mission around the sun, uh, like uh, Amber mentioned, you know, we've never really explored, you know, above, you know, 60 degrees. And that's that's a big area, you know, that's like, you know, basically the sun is like cut off at that point. I think it would just be so awesome if we could learn more about that, those areas, you know, and have a sort of a solar polar explorer i guess (laughs) wow that rhymed that would be really dora the polar solar explorer
1: well what you've done there emily is come up with an idea of how nasa can reach the youngest generation inspire them to go either into heliophysics or solar cell engineering yes superb work emily (laughs) Anyway, I love that NASA has a grant which is aimed at really out there ideas. I just think it's brilliant that as a result of this, we might now get to a point where it's easier to explore a place in our solar system that has never been explored before. And who who, who knows what else might come of this technology? I also think that Amber and Dr. Grover did a great job there of trying to explain an incredibly complex process in a way that I could understand it. By the end of that interview, I really did understand what they're doing and why it's important. Whereas beforehand, I'll be honest, I was a little bit dubious. Solar sailing? Like a boat in space? You know what I mean? Like, and Anyway, I think that was great.
0: Yeah, and I, I love the fact that, you know, not just at NASA, people at universities, engineers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they're searching for alternate ways of propulsion in space. You know, you got obviously the ion propulsion you know um i i want to say there's already been a spacecraft uh, i think that dawn spacecraft used an alternate form of propulsion um you have the idea of light sails which would use you know solar propulsion you know solar winds basically you know i love those ideas even you know just low intensity uh, low temperature you know solar panels which i believe juno the spacecraft orbiting jupiter uses i love those ideas about sort of alternate sources of energy because you know Back in the day, back in my day, uh, <laughs> back in the day, they, you know, Voyager used RTGs, which are like, you know, little plutonium pellets, which is cool. And they last for a very long time, but they're not very cheap. You know, they're expensive. Yeah. You know, we can't always rely on certain types of, you know, energy to, to power stuff because, you know, either it's going to be cost prohibitive or it just might not be available. You know, and I mean, I love the fact that they're trying to, you know, figure this out, you know, to design the spaceships of the future. You know, that's really that's really cool to me that, you know, because we're going to need that someday.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And. As always, the full interview will go up on our Patreon page. And thank you to Toby and Don for your questions. Uh, Both of them are our Patreon members. Uh, I think those questions really helped unlock that interview for people, Uh, particularly me. The the answers we got from your questions really did help uh, my understanding. So thanks for contributing those questions. Uh, Of course, anyone can get involved on our Patreon page. Just go to patreon.com forward slash space and things. And thanks again to Amber and dr grover for coming on i will put some information about them and their work in the show notes okay so it's been two weeks since we last recorded a new section and in that time there have been six launch attempts two in china including one with a crew one in kazakhstan One suborbital crewed flight in Texas, one successful flight from Kennedy Space Center, and another that failed to reach orbit. We're going to talk about some of these now, but full details and videos, if they're available, will be in our show notes, which you can find on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com.
0: Let's start with the crewed suborbital flight from Texas. Blue Origin launched one of their New Shepard rockets on Saturday, June 4th, with a crew of six people for their fifth space tourism flight. This crew included Evan Dick, who also flew with Blue Origin in December, making him the first repeat customer. Probably the most exciting story within the crew comes from Katcha Echa Zaretta, a 26 year old science communicator who became the first Mexican-born woman and youngest American woman to reach space. Her seat was sponsored by the nonprofit company Space for Humanity, which was founded by one of our previous guests, Dylan Taylor, who also flew on a previous Blue Origin flight. That was episode 35 for those who would like to go back and listen. We're big fans of what Space for Humanity is doing.
1: Absolutely, we are. On Sunday the 5th of June, the You 14 mission launched in China, taking three more Taikonauts to the Tiangong space station. The crew of Dong, Lu Yang, and Sai Zuzhou plan to be on the station for at least six months, and they'll be helping turning the station into a multi-module station, with two new modules due to launch in July and October. By the end of this, the station will be roughly 20% the size of the International Space Station.
0: Unfortunately, Astra have had yet another failed launch of their Rocket 3. This is the fifth failure in seven launches. It launched on June 12th from Kennedy Space Center, and after the first stage worked perfectly, the second stage shut down early, meaning that they failed to deliver two NASA CubeSats, which were its payload. The satellites were the first of a six-satellite fleet being used to track hurricanes. It really feels like Astra will be up against it now, but hopefully, we hope, That they can turn things around.
1: Meanwhile, France have become the 20th nation to sign up to the Artemis Accords, which they did at an event in Washington, D.C., celebrating the 60th anniversary of the founding of the French Space Agency. NASA has also selected two different companies to make spacesuits for the Artemis program. Axiom Space and Collins Aerospace will both receive access to a contract worth up to $3.5 billion to supply spacesuits for NASA missions through to 2034. Axiom are new to the spacesuit game, but Collins Aerospace, in association with ILC Dover, have been providing suits for NASA for decades. We spoke to Dan Klopp of ILC Dover way back on episode 59 of this podcast, a great interview which goes into so much detail about their plans for a future spacesuit, so that's worth checking out if you haven't already. The James Webb
0: Space Telescope will release its first science-quality images on July 12th. We don't yet know the target of these photos, but we're certainly excited to see the results. Mm-hmm. However, it's also been reported that the telescope has already experienced its first few impacts from micrometeoroids. This was expected, but one of the impacts thus far was bigger than they hoped it would be at this stage. Uh, it feels like we're plugging old episodes a lot today, but don't forget that you can find out all about the telescope on episode 68, where we spoke to Mark McCorkran of the European Space Agency.
1: So we've got a few bits of SpaceX news as well. NASA has agreed to buy five more astronaut missions, taking it through to the Crew-14 mission. We have the Crew-4 mission currently on board the ISS, and each mission seems to be lasting around six months. So a lengthy commitment from NASA to SpaceX for them to provide crewed flights to the ISS. The other big bit of SpaceX news is concerning their Starship rocket. After months of reporting delays in a report from the US Federal Aviation Administration about the environmental impact on the area of the launch site in Texas. This report has finally come out and it itemized 75 different things for SpaceX to do to mitigate their impact on the area. Elon Musk has since announced that as a result of this, the first orbital launch of Starship will take place in July we shall see about that and finally
0: on mars the perseverance rover has somehow managed to end up with a pet rock you (laughs) you heard me correctly uh somehow a rock was collected within the left front wheel of the rover this happened back in february just before valentine's day and despite all the bumpy journeys that the rover has made since then the rock has clung on and they say that romance is dead (laughs)
1: It's a great metaphor for all healthy relationships. Anyway, (laughs) that's it for this week. Thanks again for all your support. It's my plan to have our 100th show fully planned by the end of next week. So sign up to our Patreon page to be a part of that. Many thanks for all
0: your support as we continue to get closer to the big 100 milestone. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean.
1: Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.